Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. All right, we're going to get going. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out to our panel on what will it take to, start to end extinction. Not a minor topic at all. Uh, and we're glad you all showed up. My name is John Platt. I'm the editor of The Revelator. I'm going to be moderating the panel. I've been writing about extinction issues for about 15 years, and I'm glad to have a, an esteemed panel of great experts with a wide range of expertise here to talk to you. So we're going to do a brief round of introductions, and then we will dive into these important issues. Hi, everyone. Thank you guys all for coming. I'm Alex Dagan. I'm the CEO of a company called Conservation X Labs, uh, whose mission is to end human-induced extinction using innovation and technology. Uh, I am an extinction biologist. I actually got into it when I heard about the black-footed ferret and about the Florida key deer and about a number of other species that uh, humans were driving extinct and that we had driven extinct and that that thing, that idea that this single species could wipe off other species off the planet has been sort of a driving force on my, uh, in my life. Uh, two other kind of interesting, three other elements about my background. Uh, one, I used to be chief scientist at USAID and created their DARPA for development and I'm now essentially applying those tools to addressing the extinction crisis. Uh, helped create the first national park in Afghanistan. So the book describing that story is called The Snow Leopard Project and it's uh, available out there. Uh, and I've once lost a motorcycle in quicksand. <laughs> I guess they're all all right, good morning. My name is Liba Pechar, and I'm an associate professor and conservation biologist here at CSU in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. And the broad areas that I work in, uh, there's sort of two themes uh, are, uh, orient that my research is oriented around. One is I've been working in the Pacific Islands, so Hawaii and more recently in New Zealand for the last 20 years or so. And some of you may be aware that Hawaii is sometimes called the endangered species capital of the world. So we have many critically endangered forest birds in Hawaii. So that's been uh, much of the focus of my work. And then I also work more locally here in Colorado and the Mountain West uh, on in human dominated or working land. So the places where people live and work. And the focus there is more more on keeping common species common, so finding ways to work with private landowners to restore and protect biodiversity, the align with sustaining livelihoods and human well-being. Hi, I'm George Wittemeyer. I had to change my name. <laughs> um, I also am a faculty member here at CSU in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, Conservation, Biology. I'm on the mammal side, so I deal with large mammals, and most of my uh, work, professional work, has been focused on Africa and particularly on African elephants. So I've worked on that for um, several decades, uh, over half my life. I might not look that old, but I've done a lot of time in Africa. Um, the story, I guess, the, the different facets of my work are really focusing on trying to figure out how we can um, keep or increase the areas that are holding large mammals and, and the factors that, uh, that are necessary to 
lead to successes in that. Um, one of the aspects that unfortunately I've had to work a lot on is the impact of conspicuous consumption on when it's directed towards a species, in particular with elephant ivory. Done quite a bit of work on the effect of poaching and, and uh, how that. Uh, what that does to the species, what it's doing to the um, ec ecosystems they inhabit, and also to the people living in those ecosystems who rely on the elephants in different ways. Um, I played with, uh, we're always looking for um, technology, innovative solutions to try to do better monitoring and conservation. Um, a lot of my work on that has been on the law enforcement side, um, but uh, we're also trying to use tech for survey and monitoring and doing a better job of keeping track of what's going on. Um, just because of the circumstances I work, it's on the law enforcement side. Um, I do work in North America. The North American side's um, in some ways more uplifting. A lot of the focus in North America is where we can expand, uh, where large mammals uh, inhabit and uh, work to increase their range. Um, and then I have lost a research vehicle <laughs> to an elephant. <laughs> so I thought I'd start off just kind of stage setting, talking about what we've lost already this year. And extinction happens all the time. We don't always get the great reports of them. But these are the species that have gone extinct so far that I've written about so far this year. A Hawaiian snail, a Pacific Ocean shark, the bramble K. malonis, an Indian tree species, an Australian lizard, the Miss Waldron's red colobus monkey, and a New Zealand lizard. Now, some of these are species that haven't been seen in decades, and they've just been declared extinct. Others, like the, the Hawaiian snail, we lost the last member of a guy named Lonesome George. It was one of those few cases where an extinction happens in the public eye. Um, but that makes it hard to judge and for people to understand. How bad is the extinction crisis? What's going on? How bad, really, what, what, what are we talking about right now? And I'd love to throw that open to the panel to, to get your, your take on the issue. Well, well, none of the four, so I used to work on lemurs in Madagascar, and there, there's, there's kind of three uh, facts that I'll throw out that give us some indication of it, right? One is, one is uh, when I left Madagascar in 2003, uh, after my PhD, there were 45 known species of lemurs, 15 or so that had gone extinct. All the ones that had gone extinct were huge, right? They were bigger than the largest living lemur, which was about a meter tall. Uh, there were some gorilla-sized lemurs on Madagascar. Essentially, when humans came on the island, you know, 2,000 years ago from Indonesia, there was this killing spree of all these animals. Uh, there is now 105 species of lemurs. Uh, perhaps a little bit more or less, depending on the systemicist that you talk to. But that is on an island that has lost 90 to 95 percent of its forests. All the forests that I've worked in are gone. Uh, I worked on these mid-elevational forests on the southeast uh, parts of Madagascar. And essentially what we have is you know, extinction that drives up to the boundaries of these parks and frequently into the parks themselves. Uh, and places like Madagascar, right, we are still discovering extraordinary species at rates that we can't imagine. There are pictures of uh, new chameleons that are literally the length of the edge of a matchstick. Right, that that were discovered off some islands off of Madagascar. We're discovering, we're losing animals before we know that they even exist, and that for me is a tragedy because we've got the the cure for the childhood leukemia coming out of the Malagasy periwinkle. We don't even know what is the richness of the value that we have, and you know we are in the middle of a sixth extinction. It is rates at a thousand to ten thousand times that of species. And the one other fact I'll just kind of leave you with. 
um, is the fact that most of the species we have studied uh, so far to date are those species that are actually easier to study, right? They're easier to find. They're found in more places. They eat more things. They exist in more habitats. So those species that we have information of, good information on, in terms of their extinction risk, which is about 5 to 10% of the species if we're generous, right, have the very qualities that actually would make them more robust to extinction. And we estimate that huge numbers of those species are going extinct. The places where we have a lack of data, right, for places like Madagascar, for places like Gabon, for places like the Amazon, we don't know. And, and what we're seeing with climate change interacting with environmental change, and I'll show a short video of one type of sort of surprising change that people are not aware of, I think is heavily devastating. Yeah, I just wanted to also, I want to add to that and um, just mention that I think there's a lot of focus uh, for good reason on the loss of species, so the global loss of species, but also increasingly we're recognizing the sort of devastating impact of the extinction of populations, so the sort of massive narrowing and shrinkage of the range of species. And by losing populations across the majority of a species range, we lose all of those interactions that that species exhibited in that landscape. So all of the uh, ways that it served as a pollinator or as a predator or as a source of prey, um, as a source of food, uh, in, in those landscapes. And um, there's been some really neat recent work that's shown that for mammals, for example, uh, the majority of mammals, uh, the majority of their populations are have now um, been driven extinct. And so I think that's something that um, perhaps we could emphasize a bit more because we could still, a species could still be extant, but it could essentially be functionally extinct. Yeah, I tend to, a lot of my work's on the latter, where we're losing populations, we're losing their functional role in those systems, we're losing the um, the benefits that they drive to those ecosystems that tend to scale to human use. So um, there's sort of the direct repercussion of this loss in a lot of these um, systems. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that we all probably encounter is that there's it's pretty uniformly um, believed by everybody that extinction of species is a bad thing, unless you're talking about uh, malaria carrying mosquitoes or something like that. But these, in general, when you're talking about animals, most people think extinction's bad. Uh, nobody wants to be um, caught driving extinction, even when you're, if you're dealing with people directly bearing the burden of a species. They tend to want that burden alleviated, but they don't necessarily want the species gone. Um, and this is sort of a truism with humans, that we don't want to kill these species. Um, and so it becomes this, uh, this, this lack of, of acknowledgement of our role in what we're doing to the ecosystems or to the planet that's driving these, these extinctions across the, across the globe. And there's, I think the goodwill is there. We have to harness it and get people to act on it. Um, but the intent to drive species to extinct is it, pretty rare, and it, I would say it, it's almost non-existent among a lot of the humans that we interact with or are causing the problems that we're facing. Sure, but even though it's not intentional, we are causing things. So what are some of the primary causes that people might understand are causing these species to become endangered? And maybe something that you wouldn't expect, that people wouldn't really, in the audience, might not think about as a driver of endangerment and extinction. And I may as well go right to Alex in his video here. 
Yeah, I, I mean, so I've created national parks or helped other people create national parks around the world, including the first national park in Afghanistan, national parks in Madagascar, in Russia, uh, working with others in South America. Um, and I got tired of it. And one thing that really actually impressed me was uh, looking at a map of the forest reserves in Madagascar and then overlaying forest coverage. And these are not the national parks. These are the initial m protection areas that they had. And there wasn't a single tree in any of the forest reserves. So the problem is if we don't actually address the underlying drivers of extinction, which is what we focus on, we're not going to actually solve the problem. In some cases, things like islands, right? If you look at the IUCN data of all the species that have gone extinct, it generally is invasive species, and that's because a lot of our extinctions have happened on islands and they're invaders. Our habitats now are islands, right? And so the invasives are important, and that includes novel diseases that we're starting to see other places. But it is our demand for things like protein, and air conditioning, which you can imagine as the world gets warmer, it doesn't feel that way outside, but as the world gets warmer, uh, you know, we're going to see more and more people get richer. We're going to see more people who want meat and dairy and air conditioning and refrigeration in terms of what we're doing. The other thing is literally uh, some of the minerals that are in things like this iPhone that was used to take this video. So apology, I'm not a journalist or a filmmaker, um, but I think it is an important video. This is an area called La Pampa. Uh, it is between Manu National Park in Peru and Madidi National Park in Bolivia. If you know anything about those two parks, you know that they fight with each other to say who has the most species per hectare uh, on the planet. It is in the heart of the Amazon. Uh, it is some of the most, there are uncontacted tribes in this region uh, immediately adjacent, uh, you know, within a kilometer where this first image is. And we went into an area that through something called artisanal scale mining, uh, this is not hipster mining, right? But this is this is like fundamentally, this is 40 to 70, uh, 40 to 100 million people around the world engaged in the practice of mining for things like the minerals that are for cobalt, for the minerals tantalum, which is one of the minerals that's used for the capacitors in this computer and in this cell phone. Uh, and it is actually driven by the same illegal networks as drive trafficking in persons, trafficking in drugs, trafficking in weapons, trafficking in wildlife. Uh, but the thing is, this one area in three years, this was taken in July, uh, cleared 15,000 hectares with 30,000 miners. Uh, if you just bear with me, and hopefully we can get this to work. Uh, and this is a picture, actually, as I'm flying over, that is all cleared land. Uh, those ponds are all filled with mercury. They use mercury to amalgamate the gold. They destroy the forest and then sterilize, essentially, the land, and then it's one-third mercury-induced. And then that gold uh, goes into all the components, your jewelry, your components. It's very hard to trace. It's a lot harder than diamonds, which are themselves hard to trace in terms of what we're doing. So we're launching a grand challenge uh, to help us find solutions because one of the challenges we have is conservation can't actually, the problems in conservation can't just be solved by conservationists. We actually need to have an evolution of the field that brings in technologists and economists and anthropologists and behavior change people to help us solve problems that are these this complex. 
So that's obviously a super extreme example. We've just lost massive forests that were home to, you know, homes at various times of the year to migratory birds. We've lost microhabitats for species, plants or insects or whatever the case might be that only grew up and never ranged more than a hectare in size. But other things are the death of a thousand paper cuts, um, other losses. So what have, what have you seen in your work, George and Leba, that you can use as examples to help people understand what's going on and what we're losing? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I've worked in islands uh, for the last several decades. And in Hawaii, I'd say that the loss is much more, uh, it's, it's much more sort of incipient and hidden and cryptic. Um, and it's more the death by a thousand cuts that, um, that was just referenced. And, and the leading driver of loss uh, and decline for birds is uh, introduced disease, is avian malaria for forest birds in Hawaii. And uh, that problem, though, is being exacerbated by climate change. So it's these sort of synergistic effects of this big kind of global environmental change that's happening uh, with the introduction, uh, you know, many years ago of a disease, of a mosquito, it's not native to Hawaii, and also of, the, of this disease, avian malaria. And the birds in Hawaii are completely naive to this disease. There's a few species that appear to may have developed some resistance or the disease is less virulent for those species, uh, but those are the most common and widespread species. So the ones that are already rare uh, are essentially limited to above what we call the disease line. So it's a tropical disease and um, that mosquito itself is, is relies on warmer temperatures. And so everything below around four or 5,000 feet is the disease zone. So birds can only persist, the native rare birds can only persist above four or 5,000 feet. That line fluctuates a bit. Well, on the island of Kauai is just over 5,000 feet high. And with climate change, that disease line is being put, is, is going up the mountain and essentially reaching the highest elevation on Kauai and pushing those birds off the top of the mountain. And there's no place left for them to go that's a refuge from disease, again, because of this interaction with climate. Uh, there are some there are some possible paths forward for addressing this disease issue um, because, of course, addressing climate change is critical, but that's not going to happen on a timeline that's going to enable these birds to survive. So there's three species of endangered forest bird on Kauai that all have populations of about 500 individuals or less. So there's 500 individuals of these these three species left in the in the world, and they're restricted to this small island. Uh, the top of this island on Kauai. So some of the solutions that are being talked about are, uh, are introducing a, um, uh, a, a several pathways that would make uh, the disease, the mosquitoes less likely to be able to spread the disease. Um, some tools are genetic engineering oriented tools and others involve uh, introducing a bacterium um, but both of these are going to take broad social acceptance. So um, referencing the, what Alex mentioned, you know, getting the public on board is that we have the technological solutions um, to address the disease problem, but we don't yet have the broad public support. Um, and I am a little bit concerned that we won't get that in time. So that's a really critical piece. Okay, so a lot of what I've experienced has been um, similar to the artisanal 
mining story where you have a commercial product, um, be it in a protected area. The artisanal mining story is happening across Central Africa um, right now. There's been, um, it's, it's coupled, so typically to, to develop artisanal mining, you, you have to bring in roads. Um, there's also, for logging concessions, they're bringing in roads. And with those roads, uh, brings access to wilderness areas. And with that access, brings rapid denution of uh, the megafauna in these systems. Um, typically driven by uh, meat consumption by the miners themselves or markets which they feed. Uh, so there are actually other sort of other economic activities spur out of these mining operations um, and logging, similar, same story with logging. Um, and, and then unfortunately we, we maintain, we continue um, to be fascinated, our species continues to be fascinated with uh, certain items. And, and the cell phone is, is one where it's, it's death by a thousand cuts in many ways. It's innocuous, we all have our phone, we use it, you know, we didn't do anything. We're all um, uh, tree huggers or, or green, whatever we are, right? And yet um, we are absolutely destroying these ecosystems. The other thing we're all doing is we're eating products with palm oil, and palm oil has systematically eradicated uh, the tropics in Asia. It's almost finished in Asia the, where we can grow palm oil uh, commercially, and it's now switching to Africa, and that is the next great uh, disaster that's going to drive it, and all of us are consuming palm oil. Um, again, we're not doing this. We're not eating uh, palm oil sandwich and laughing about the orangutans <laughs> that we just uh, finished off with our sandwich, right? But we are um, part and parcel into this. Um, and the, the, the one, I guess, that's most poignant in my life has been watching the effect of commercial trade in a species, especially when it's fed for conspicuous consumption. And uh, this has been really the rhino and the, and the elephant story, where you have, we talk about, Liba just talked to us about this, this issue that happens when we have these small populations left in these remnant areas and what we do to protect them. And so we tend to think these large wildernesses with large populations are safe. Um, size, number, is, protects us from extinction or extirpation. And the sad truth is that, um, that we're ravenous. Humans are absolutely ravenous. And it takes relatively minor tweaks in our um, perception of what's of value and what's of interest. And we will consume everything we can get from that thing. And so ivory is a, is a classic story that's gone on um, through all, from Roman times, overconsumption in Roman times was the first eradication elements focused from ivory um, through, the, through uh, the, the industrialization of Europe and the U.S., through Japanese uh, economic revival, through Chinese ascension now. All of them, all of these societies have gone on a feeding frenzy for ivory as they became more affluent. And the result has been absolutely eradication where the numbers didn't mean anything incredibly quick eradication so in in five years you know in, the, in five years between 2008 and 2012 we lost um, 40,000 elephants in one park in Tanzania all of it you can't kill killing 40,000 elephants and moving their teeth is actually takes a lot of effort um, and it it was all going on it was it was done um, you know the the facts of it are um, not something that we need to discuss too much about, but this is going on like literally, you know, it, it, everybody loves elephants, nobody wants this to happen, it's happening right in front of everybody's face, and, we, and you can't stop it once it gets going. There's nothing we can do against that economic pressure. Rhinos is another example where we annihilated that, the, the five species of rhino incredibly quickly. 
all for conspicuous items. And now, recently, the one that's going to potentially finish them off is this this sort of bunk uh, medicinal, cultural medicinal value of these items. And it just cleans out. The value becomes so high. Rhino's, rhino horn's most expensive, worth more than actually some of these metals in our phone. Um, and what are you going to do? We're, we're training men to kill men to protect rhinos, keep them on the planet. Every rhino has an armed uh, guard almost. That's where we're down to that level. Countries are saying, I don't want rhinos. I cannot bear the cap, the cost of having rhinos because the level of protection, the military uh, intervention required to maintain the species is too high. And so this is a major problem that we have this, this attitude um, and this, this, this sort of uh, culturally induced uh, feeding frenzy of, of these items that are, are directly resulting in the, the, des the destruction of biodiversity. And I just want to end with one thing on, on journalism. The journalist, um, the role of environmental journalism in flagging these issues and bringing these, uh, these issues to the public is, is um, absolutely priceless. It's unbelievably important. Uh, the elephant story is one that's uh, completely been turned by the influence of journal journalism and coverage of these stories, where you're bringing the reality to light to people, getting inducing cultural change, cultural shifts on what we value. Um, and without journalism bringing that pressure, bringing that attention, and repeatedly doing this, not just one story, but con like you know, repeatedly bringing this up, um, that's what actually has had influence on governments. It's had influence on um, public uh, purchasing of these products, and it's had uh, influence on policy. And so it's, it's something that the role of journalism to me is uh, it's incredibly valuable, it's incredibly important, um, and it's played a huge role in actually protecting species. So I just wanted to give you guys a shout out before we move on. Uh, just spot on. I, um, you know, and I just want to build on something both of you actually just said that I thought was really good is, is on this role of behavior change. Um, conservation traditionally has fought against human behavior rather than harnessed it, right? And that is a huge problem for us. Uh, and we can't afford to do it. And there's a huge power, again, that the people in this room have, because, you know, nowadays, 70% of a company's stock is based on perception of that stock, right? But there are ways that we've kind of done it wrong. So if you think about endangered species lists, which, and red lists, and all those things, which I've help support, uh, in some ways it could actually drive up demand for the species by making more valuable for people that want it, who are driven increasingly by not by health, but by wealth, as, as you are saying. Uh, the second is really thinking about like the idea of the emaciated polar bear on the ice flow actually dissuades people from solving climate change. And even all the negative stories themselves without a link to what people can do or a tie to how they can solve the issue or some measure of hope can dissuade people from actually wanting to solve the problem because they just believe there's nothing they can do. And there's lots of examples of this. I, a Venezuela, I think it was a mayor in Colombia, I think it was Bogota, I'm not 100% sure, who had a water crisis, one of, their pipe, one of their major pipes coming into the city broke and then warned everyone, we have a water crisis and water consumption went up because everyone said, well, if we're running out, I got to use as much as I can. So we have to think about behavior and about change in, in really smart ways. So again, sticking with the theme of how we prevent extinction, 
We're hearing about changing behavior. We're hearing about the role of the journalists in the audience here. And I want to repeat that. You guys are key to this. You guys should be telling these stories, looking for the bad stories and the success stories. We've heard about genetics. We've heard about technology. Um, Alex, you mentioned air conditioning. I mean, how, how is solving an air conditioning problem going to, and this is really out, of, out, out, out there example, how is that going to help contribute to solving the extinction crisis? Uh, so if you guys are familiar with Project Drawdown, it was the first uh, it was the first attempt to quantify what solutions would take the most CO2 out of the atmosphere. The number one thing on that list, number two is girls, which I think is really interesting. Number one, th number three, I think is food waste, which is another problem to think about extinction, right? There's a trillion gallon of water just left on the fields. And you think about all the food that's wasted. Uh, it is not just the food, it's the clearance, it's the nitrogen, phosphorus, pesticides, everything else that goes on that. But number one thing was cooling, and that is refrigeration and air conditioning. And so with the Rocky Mountain Institute and the Indian government, we're running a cooling challenge because that, if you think about it, when you build your grid infrastructure, you're building it for your hottest day. And India would literally have to double its grid infrastructure and double the billions of dollars it provides in subsidies for electricity to account for the demand of people who are merging into middle class, who are getting room ACs, and who, uh, you know, in a place that will be getting much, much hotter. Right to deal with it. So we're running a challenge with the Rocky Mountain Institute. We're now in the testing phase and the Indian government for a five-fold increase in efficiency in air conditioning units as a way of actually addressing climate change, which is strange for a conservation organization to do. Uh, but it's called the Global Cooling Challenge. Cool. So what are some other things that we're seeing in your own work or in the field um, that might be unexpected ways that, that conservationists or anyone else is tr are trying to address these issues and help species on the ground? Liba. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll talk about a few like very specific examples that I'm aware of. So uh, in, uh, uh, in the Hawaii context, uh, I think engaging with, we've talked about the importance of protected areas, but also moving beyond protected areas and often protected areas alone are not enough. So actively engaging with private landowners and finding ways to uh, restore and protect habitat for biodiversity that also aligns uh, with their, uh, their livelihoods and their cultural traditions and uh, their their, the, the values that their fa families held, I think, is really important. So in Hawaii, one of the projects we've been involved in is working with large ranchers to plant islands of trees. Uh, this is a native tree called koa, which is really ecologically valuable, also economically valuable, and culturally valuable. So it's what the, uh, the early voyagers from Polynesia, they made their canoes out of koa. So this is really important for indigenous people. And um, it also makes a lot of sense for ranchers ranchers to plant koa, it's an investment for their grandchildren because the wood is so valuable, you can selectively harvest it and create just beautiful musical instruments, um, ukuleles and guitars. And so we worked with willing landowners to plant islands of koa in such a way that they continue to run their cattle up and down uh, their land so it doesn't interfere with their way of life, and yet it provides new habitat and also stepping stones for birds to move across these landscapes. So that's been a really neat project um, uh, to be involved in. And then I also want to talk about uh, what's happening in New Zealand. And New Zealand is just incredibly progressive 
when it comes to uh, addressing issues around invasive species compared to anywhere in the U.S. and maybe almost anywhere else in the world. And so there are several really neat things that they've done. First is uh, they've eradicated mammals from their offshore islands, and then when they ran invasive out of- Invasive mammals. Invasive mammals, <laughs> yeah, my, my apologies. There are no native mammals in um, New Zealand as there are no native mammals except for one small bat in Hawaii. So these islands often, uh, there was just, they're just too far for mammals to arrive uh, on their own. So, and the birds, many of whom are flightless, are really susceptible to predation um, from invasive mammals, from these predators. And so they, they, they got rid of the invasive mammals from these offshore islands, and then they ran out of offshore islands. And so they moved to the mainland, and they created mainland island sanctuaries. And the neat thing about these is that they're embedded in people's communities. So many of them are community-run. So this isn't a top-down thing. This is a community-driven effort. Um, so the native birds are on the currency and on the walls of coffee shops and things like that. It's become part of the culture. Um, it's become, it's, people are proud of, what, of their natural heritage. And now they're moving beyond these mainland island sanctuaries and the government has proposed this bold plan to be predator free uh, by 2050. Again, these invasive predators. And so um, uh, that's something that I think we, can learn from um, the lessons that uh, other countries are providing, um, other regions of the world are providing to perhaps be ambitious and also really uh, make an effort to engage and be inclusive of the community, to work together with the community um, and with the public and with private landowners uh, to move sort of some innovative conservation approaches forward. George? Um, yeah, I would just second. I think some of the most innovative stuff going on right now is, is where we have public partner, uh, private partnership, on trying to solve some of these issues, and then um, engaging with communities on on resource management. And so there's a, there's a lot of examples. This is sort of the, the going story um, in Africa as well as the the development and expansion of community conservancies. Um, there, it's more uh, communal, communally held uh, rangelands that are, are being targeted. In the U.S., we're focusing a lot with what we can do on these larger uh, privately held lands, and we have a, a bunch of examples. Some of them, um, I don't know if we're going to get into tech in a bit, but some of them are pretty low-tech solutions that tend to work. Going back to what was done uh, historically and, and trying to revitalize some of the approaches to living with uh, species that that we use, sort of indigenous uh, people often used, um, and bringing those back up so that can have huge successes. So there's a lot of uh, different trajectories that are going on. Um, the, the thing that I find really interesting, one of the things we're seeing in, in Africa is that governments uh, tend to have issues running uh, the national parks or the protected areas. And there's been, um, and this is due to a lot of um, fundamental uh, problems in those countries. And so what we are seeing is, is real um, efficacy in bringing in uh, public-private uh, management where there's, there's shared constituencies uh, running different aspects of protected areas or um, communal lands or, um, or uh, more broadly intersecting with private lands. And um, those, that intersection of bringing in sort of multiple uh, interest groups has been fundamental for the revitalization of a lot of uh, important biodiverse areas. And so I think um, we often have tried to f been working through government, like uh, U.S. government often is trying to work through governments, and that can be really important to do. Um, but one of the things that can be the most effective is for us, the U.S. government, um, to encourage uh, public-private partnership 
in managing protected areas or in working to them, rather than trying to uh, force the government to fit into, you know, fit this square peg that we have uh, identified for them. And so I think this is where we're seeing uh, the best innovation and the biggest success stories I'm seeing in Africa right now are, are on those. Because we're having areas that were absolutely devastated a decade ago um, now have uh, returned in incredible glory, actually, to where they're functioning as ecosystems. It's really exciting to see. So there's a lot of successes out there um, that need more coverage, and they need coverage in a way that brings that brings you know uh, draws people's emotion and connection to the area, but draws attention to how the success occurred in order to encourage that we do that more. Um, so that was one area where I think journalism again can really come in and play a role. And I think uh, some of the government, I think sometimes the U.S. government, some of the government uh, personnel are slower to recognize and respond to these things. And it helps to get a bit of um, public pressure on them and recognition. And so I think that's often how these things get picked up. Because institutional, uh, you know, it's like turning the barge. It's hard to get institutional progress or, or changing of direction on these things. Yeah. So uh, so let's talk tech. We have about five minutes before we throw it open to the audience for questions. There's all kinds of new technologies that are helping te uh, conservationists in, in achieving their goals. So, George, you wanted to bring it up next, so I'll let you bring up okay. an example. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll carry on with the public-private um, partnership. We've been working... Uh, I work with an NGO. I'm a chairman of the scientific board for a group called Save the Elephants based in Kenya. And we've done a lot of uh, technological work where we're essentially putting, increasingly we're putting tech that's in your cell phone onto the collar that we put on an animal. And so we can do all sorts of monitoring. A lot of our technology is developed commercially for the cell phone industry. Taking what they've developed and throwing on animals has been the greatest success for us because we simply don't have the uh, market space or the economic incentive to get that sort of technological development. So this miniaturization um, and efficiency that we have in our phones has been really beneficial for us. Um, and so we've done a, quite a bit of stuff on, on real-time tracking of animals, building up networks to have real-time data coming on what the animals are doing, where they're going, um, how they're interfacing, what threats they're, fa they're facing so that we can get rapid response. And so a lot of this has been on the, the, um, the more law enforcement side of things, but we're also using it um, to identify important biological things. So, for example, you can have real-time monitoring where migrations are coming in and you want to shut down operations of a wind farm or you want to um, pull livestock or pull uh, human activities off an area to let the animals go through. And you can do this quite precisely. Whereas before, we would often do this and say, hey, the migration's coming through these two months. So let's reduce um, activities. We can now sort of hone in and do that much more efficiently with some of these tech solutions. And, and, the, and the platform that we've been working on has actually been um, amplified hugely by, uh, by partnering with uh, private sector. And so um, Vulcan Philanthropic, it's, a, it's actually turned more philanthropic recently, but it was Paul Allen's um, uh, sort of his company, his philanthropic arm, as well as his commercial arm. And we've partnered with them. They're very tech, uh, Paul Allen being the Microsoft Paul Allen, um, very tech-savvy group. And having that sort of power, the tech companies um, coming in has been incredibly uh, beneficial for us. Google Earth, actually, the Google Earth platform, um, th they built it so people could interface with your Google Maps and you can play around on the map. I would argue that Google Earth platform has been one of the most fundamental technological advances that's publicly available that has helped conservation from 
Forest Watch International to we're we're running real time tracking of elephants with government officials on it so they can see where the elephants are going and help them make decisions. And that's a platform that wasn't built for conservation, but has incredible uh, conservation implications. And so these kind of um, tech solutions of bringing information real time um, and more accessible to the public um, have been really beneficial. Okay. Uh, so I don't do um, tech work myself, so I'm going to talk about some uh, amazing work that's being done by my friend and colleague, Jen Barfield. I don't know, were any of you on the bison ferret trip yesterday? A handful of you. So you already know a lot about this, but um, I was uh, uh, tangentially involved in the bison reintroduction project here in northern Colorado, where bison have been returned to Soapstone Prairie natural area and Red Mountain open space, so public land just north of Fort Collins here. And what made that possible uh, is, is, was Jen's work. And so Jen is in the uh, College of uh, Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Science here, and she's a specialist in assisted reproduction. And um, essentially what she's done is adopted technology from IVF in vitro fertilization techniques in cattle to use them on uh, with bison. And that's enabled us to get bison out of Yellowstone. So Yellowstone has one of the only and definitely largest herds of free-roaming bison in North America, uh, or certainly in the U.S. And yet, because of this uh, um, perceived problem with brucellosis, a disease that came from cattle, spilled over into bison, and now um, there's concern about, about it spilling back over into cattle. Reintroducing bison from Yellowstone to anywhere else is perceived as really problematic to the ranchers in those places, including here in northern Colorado. And so Jen was able to use these new technologies uh, to cleanse uh, Yellowstone embryos of brucellosis and plant them in host bison here out on the Foothills campus here in Fort Collins and then reintroduce these calves back out onto soapstone. So we're preserving this really important and special uh, legacy, genetic legacy of Yellowstone bison um, using these kind of cutting, cutting edge techniques. And this uh, project's just been enormously successful. The herd's grown, grown from 11 individuals to now close to 100 in the last four years. And some of my group's work has been looking at the ecological consequences of that reintroduction, so the additional benefits the restoring bison has to the land for uh, bird communities and other mammal communities and to the plant community. Great. Uh, well, it's time for the audience to, to participate. We'd love to have you guys ask any questions you have. Rules are simple as with all SEJ conferences. SEJ members go first. Please identify your name and outlet. Ask a question, I'll repeat it so that everyone can hear it, and we'll go from there. Hillary, I'm back. So two questions, following up on Alex's point about air conditioning, is it a climate thing or is it something else? And in terms of conveying solutions, what are, what are some of the solutions we can convey? What are the, some of the things we can talk about? All right. Um, yeah, so on the air conditioning, it's 100% climate, right? So the gases used in traditional vapor compression technology, it really hasn't changed. Or, 22,000 times as powerful as CO2. There's end-of-life issues, there's releases during manufacturing, there's releases during use, and then there's the energy use. So the best air conditioner, most efficient air conditioner you can buy in the market today is 10% as efficient as the technology actually allows it to be. So there isn't even the, so one is, you know, the second part of your question is, how do you actually generate demand? 
right, for these products? How do you have societal license? Because if we can go to cellular agriculture, plant-based meats, if we can go to demanding more efficient air conditioners, and then I think even taking it further is there are some things like palm oil, that why are we giving consumers a choice uh, in the first place? in terms of if we know that these things are directly leading to the elimination or extinction of, of, a, of, a, uh, of a population of orangutans, you know, let's eliminate choices when, those, when we can. Anyone else want to answer on that? Yeah, one, I just wanted to bring one point. You know, the air conditioners are really interesting. One. The other one for me that's really fascinating is, is something like LED lighting. Um, we have these commercially driven um, solutions that actually have huge implications for conservation. And LED lighting is a fantastic one. Obviously, it reduces the energy consumption. But the thing we're doing with LED lighting is we're using it, we're putting it in the blue spectrum of light, which is we're essentially cr recreating at night, we're recreating daylight. Um, and that's not great for night. Uh, night's actually quite important for bio biological functioning. It's important for our biological functioning. Now we all have, I hope you all have your night app on your cell phone so that it helps you sleep because it disrupts, you. when you have your blue screen on, it disrupts your sleep. So you should all put on your night, uh, whatever it's called, the night uh, adjustment, do you think? So we're adjusting our personal devices actually to deal with this so we sleep better, but we're inundating these natural systems with blue light, with daylight. And it's quite simple that all we have to do is shift that technology. We can reduce, we're reducing the energy, which is fantastic. I'm really thankful for that. But we all have to do is shift the spectrum a bit and we don't have any impact on the natural systems. So what that takes is, is basic understanding of, of the factors. So this is an example where it's actually not a big deal to do it. It's, it's totally within our capacity to do it. It's just no one pays attention or cares. I think it's death by a thousand cuts again. And so I think one of the things with environmental journalism that's really important is going in and talking to people. Um, and you can, I think, depending on who you talk to, it can be pretty depressing sometimes. But a lot of them do know that there are solutions out there that we can work in. Finding you guys, you know, one of your jobs can be to go out and find those solutions that are, are low-hanging fruit that we can actually do that have changes. Sometimes those of us embedded in the field are so overwhelmed or have been through so much um, that it's hard for us to step back and say, this is the messaging we need to give to the public. Um, yeah. But with LED lights, we have the greatest success in Florida with nesting sea turtles. We have turned yep. that around, yep. changing the colors, changing the direction the lights are pointed. Those are things we can take in further directions. So on the end there. Yeah. So just for the audience, repeating that, genetic engineering and things like that, potential solutions, also opening up potential conflicts, potential bad effects. But how are we conveying that to the public who might be directly impacted? by these, these new ideas and these new technologies. And, and I'm curious to hear about these, this, these two solutions this, to your bird. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I think part of it comes from the history of mistakes that we have made. So Hawaii does have a history of had, having made some mistakes when it comes to things like biocontrol. So in an attempt to mediate the impact of rats on uh, sugarcane, for example, uh, mongoose were introduced, and mongoose are diurnal and rats are nocturnal, so one's active by night and one by day, and so they don't interact at all, and now we have rats and mongoose um, that are widespread in Hawaii. And, um, you know, but we've, I think we've learned a lot 
from from those past mistakes. And um, so biocontrol, which neither of which are really exactly, that's not really the solution for disease per se, but any kind of intervention, I think, raises, raises red flags. And, um, and that's understandable. And I think in Hawaii, also, the genetic engineering, as it is maybe in lots of places around the world, raises red flags. People are concerned about genetic engineering. I think one thing that we might have going for us in Hawaii is that nobody is a huge fan of mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes are not native to Hawaii. So uh, we're not losing, we're not losing uh, biodiversity, because these mosquitoes are still widespread in other parts of the world. But there's still this perception that you're interfering with uh, your inter your engin genetically engineering, or you're introducing a new uh, pathway by which mosquitoes wouldn't be able to reproduce, and so it's manip it's manipulative essentially. And so uh, I'm not directly involved in this myself, but my understanding is that the folks that are working to move these uh, pathways forward are working with, have hired a, just in a, the short-term solution has been to hire a postdoc through Cornell University who is a specialist in conservation social science to go out and run a series of focal group meetings with community members to kind of better understand their knowledge and understanding around these issues and their perspectives on these possible solutions to the disease issue. So they're trying to kind of take a systematic approach to engaging the public early on um, so that they don't make the mistake with some of these biocontrol issues in the past. I went to a meeting, for example, around biocontrol for strawberry guava, which is a noxious invasive plant in Hawaii. And um, the, the science was there to show that it wouldn't have any non, this introduced um, insect that they were gonna bring in, wouldn't have any, it would slow the reproduction, but wouldn't have any non-target effects. And yet there were this whole group of folks came, um, there, a small group of folks, but with really loud voices, uh, suggesting that it would compromise the ability of Native Hawaiians to harvest you know, fruit. And these were not Native Hawaiian people. Um, but these people were speaking, they felt, on behalf of Native Hawaiians, um, losing this potential food source. Um, and it's that, that was then portrayed in the media as um, there were sort of two sides to this argument or to this discussion when that probably really wasn't the case in the end. So I think this time around, we're trying to avoid those sort of very public and not very productive conversations and instead go to the communities directly. I don't know if that helps. I can provide you with other resources offline too. Yeah, if I could, if I could just, you know, we always tend with risk to look at the risk of taking an action but we don't actually ever look at the risk of inaction. And this is, this is why I have a hard time with things like GMOs, because we know what the pathway is. 9.6 billion people on this earth means about a billion new hectares of cleared land. That, the United States is 950 million hectares. So that is the loss of the Amazon basin and the loss of the Congo basin if we just continue down the pathways that we have. So if we're not actually taking risk, the bigger risk may be just keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Right. So just to repeat it, rather than writing for the same markets, the same audiences, are there examples of stories that have been told in other media that have had an effect, that have done some good? Or do you have any advice maybe on trying to reach 
business journals, trade journals, newspapers, CBS This Morning. <laughs> yeah. So I well I I don't I don't look at it as like a, I don't know if there's a golden example of one story that was in the right place that had this huge influence. Although, um, arguably, I, I don't know, I, I recently watched this documentary on Bill's brain, on Bill Gates, and, the, and uh, <laughs> it was um, uh, what, uh, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times wrote this thing about sanitation issues, and it got literally the, the op-ed column in the New York Times Bill Gates read it, and he was like, I'm going to put a billion dollars into solving the sanitation problem. So there are examples of that. Um, and I think Nicholas Kristof was like, this is probably the greatest thing I've done in my life, is this one article. Um, but um, in general, I, th I think the exciting, you know, it's, you're selling, you guys have to sell these stories. Someone has to buy them, obviously. And it's a trick of finding what's going to feed the audience and what's going to get interest. I've been through a lot of different renditions of, of um, different stories on the work that I've, I'm blessed to have worked on a pretty high-profile species, and so a lot of different things. It's always fascinating to me what gets picked up and, and really blossoms or goes viral or whatever the word you want to use versus what doesn't. And it's not always clear to me uh, what does. And I think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's timing, it's, it's sometimes the evocative uh, byline or whatever it is, I'm not sure. Um, but the thing that's been really interesting is I've had opportunities to, for example, I've worked in commercial trade a lot of wildlife products. And I've had opportunities where trade industries will come and they have their, uh, their magazine or sort of their press uh, body where they're it's really targeted for those dealing with, um, you know, the, the um, import and export of materials globally. And those guys will come in and they'll be like, oh, this is a really interesting thing for us to write about. And they, so, you, so you're writing about commercial trade and wildlife, and you might not think about sort of these trade industries or these specific target individuals, but actually those are the guys who are monitoring the flow of these illegal goods. They're the one actually capturing it. Um, and so that audience arguably is much more important than the general public. Although the general public, we want them to be aware so they don't buy these products. But so there, I think there's quite a few examples where if you're working on a, on a story, if you think about maybe the indirect connections, some of those, uh, those players actually can be really key cogs. In, in this case, for example, in, in actually policing against the illegal wildlife trade or illegal um, metals trade or these kind of things. Those, those guys are actually the ones who are doing the policing. And so telling them what they're, pay what they're paying attention to is what they're being told by, is usually economic, it's laundering of economic products, what they're actually being told to do. And if you flag to them, pay attention to this, they actually will start, um, get, they can get interest and they can start paying attention. So there's these sort of weird, I guess, weaker links that we don't think about that I think you guys can amplify with your stories. Um, I, so, so I, almost everything we work on is financially sustainable and scalable because because while we love Ted Schmidt and we love Vulcan and we love philanthropy and we love the Moore Foundation and the Walton Foundation is a huge the Walton Family Foundation is a huge supporter of conservation and they're here in force. Uh, we don't think that that's where the solution lies. We think the only way we're going to find solutions is if they actually mat match or beat the price points of existing solutions. So a lot of what we focus on are, you know, tools that engineer resilience, tools that allow us to do enforcement. But we also mainly are looking at things that could be replacements. And one of the companies that's a great example, and this gets back to Virginia's question, and you're an amazing writer, so thank you for all the stuff that you've done, um, is a company called New Way Foods, 
right, which was started by two women and a script oceanographer, uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, material scientists uh, who's, you know, were really worried about shrimp. If you think about shrimp, every pound of shrimp you eat is 15 pounds of bycatch that's thrown away. And so they used red algae to create essentially a shrimp product that looks like shrimp, tastes like shrimp. Uh, uh, literally, it's unbelievably delicious. You can't tell the difference when it's breaded. No one will be able to. Uh, and I've had it, and it's great. Uh, but they are now sca- they just got a major investment from Tyson's Foods. Right. So there is a huge interest in these markets of finding replacements that serve multiple communities. And I think just adding on Virginia, I think, you know, popular science and fast company and Fords uh, are places that increasingly where we're looking at solutions that also represent markets that you have a demand. But, I, you know, we did an aquaculture challenge to replace because we were 50 percent of our fish are farmed. But. The food we fish them, feed them is actually from wild fish that we grind up that are the bottom of the food chain for all our oceans. Uh, and we're looking at how to use insects, algae, seaweed, uh, you know, yeast, engineering yeast to actually produce protein because we can do that. Uh, and we have done it for other things that are probably less good like biofuels. So, so we ran a competition uh, to be able to do that. And, and it is incredible how much uh, the one thing that was really important for us was meeting the price per ton and the nutrient content per ton of any of the replacements. Because if you're not beating that price, you're not competitive. And that, that's got to be key. Yeah. How can we take the, this, the loss in biodiversity, link it, to the, link it to the loss in human culture, and use the human culture to support biodiversity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's absolutely critical that we do that. And that I think collectively, as conserva- conservation biologists, I'll just say my opinion is, is that we've largely fallen short on really engaging um, the way that we should. And uh, but I think that there are ways um, to I think there are ways to to do a much better job recognizing traditional ecological knowledge. People often refer to it that way. All of the knowledge that's held uh, within the long histories of people that have occupied the land where these where the, these other species also exist. And um, I'll just give one small example from my own work. I have a really amazing master's student uh, right now. His name is Kilo. He's from Molokai, Hawaii. And he's working on a species of anadromous snail, which means it moves between the ocean and the rivers. Uh, spends part of its life cycle in the ocean and part up these rivers. And the valleys that he's working in, one of those valleys uh, was his grandfather grew up there speaking only Hawaiian, growing um, poi, uh, the sort of native Hawaiian root vegetable. And that valley, even though it's technically owned by the state, everyone essentially acknowledges that that is his family's valley. They all go back and camp there every summer. Nobody else could possibly do this work of trying to understand how this species is distributed across the North Shore of Molokai. Um, this species is also harvested, has been traditionally harvested. And so part of his work is to understand the distribution and abundance of this species and what's driving declines and shifts in population. But the other part of his work, an equal part of his work, is engaging with his own local community and his own family to better understand how he can in- how he can involve them, how they want to be involved with conserving and recovering and restoring this species moving forward. So what do those pathways look like for them? How can we 
uh, enable the community to take a leadership role in conservation. Anyone else want to fill on in that? That's a, it's such an important question. I would just, I'll add quickly, you know, a lot of work we're doing across communities, you have the, the entry point and the leverage point to, towards efficacy often with community engagement and, and some of the large mammal issues I work, I work with in Africa is really based on cultural perception. And so you have, uh, it's actually, there's, there's really easy to work with communities who sort of fundamentally have um, interest in certain species, like say, say a problem animal, a problem species they have to deal with, but they have a cultural significance to it. That's a very different context to engage with them on conservation solutions than uh, a group of individuals that don't have that sort of cultural foundation. I think we're more increasingly recognizing that and trying to leverage that, especially as, as we're facing rapid change. And so coming in and saying, where can we be effective? Cultural basis is really important for that. Has the Trump's rollback of the Endangered Species Act played out internationally? Has that carried the message further? And I'll tell an example. I, I, people in Belize have told me that they're having trouble protecting the manatee there because they took the manatee off the, the put, lowered it to a threatened status here in the United States. Now that was before, I think it was before the Trump administration. But are there other examples? We think that this, the changes here are, are cascading to other parts of the world. I, I mean, just, just Bolsonaro. Right, like in Brazil, I, I I don't think it's specific to the Endangered Species Act. Right, it it is sort of a larger movement against democracy, against um, you know for autocracy, against science uh, that we are seeing. You know, where you have a reality star that is uh, has a higher popular opinion than scientists or physicians is a problem for me. Uh, and I'm an evolutionary biologist, so I'm really terrified when I drive through certain parts of the country. But, the, but, but I think it clearly is. We're seeing a rollback of the great gains we've made on democracy. And I think things like protection of the environment, where people are given a voice and allowed to protect the environment, is one of those casualties that we see. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I'm actually going to change the topic. One, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to preach to you a little bit. Um, <laughs> the, I think one thing that's been really apparent to me, and under these conditions that we're facing with an administration that's antagonistic to conservation, environmental policy, whatever, um, has been the individuals that stay in the federal government and try to hold the line. Some of them are trying to secure data that, that's, that they're actively trying to get erased. Um, those individuals um, arguably are really on the front line of conservation, especially right now. Um, and I think it's one thing that's been interesting is that I've been in, I've encountered uh, situations where environmental journalists are um, demanding and, and almost um, uh, not being f uh, supportive of, the, of federal scientists that want to keep their head very low and don't want attention at this time. And there's a very good reason they don't want. And so. I just wanted to flag that a little quick preach is like is is you we I feel like as an academic my job is to help facilitate help these federal scientists in the role where they're handcuffed I'm not and so I feel like that's my role and I think environmental journalism equally has that role that we need to help facilitate and help the federal scientists that are under fire right now um, and that's got to be in a way that protects them because um, they're not going to come out and stick their head up if they do they're done and then they don't really serve any function so. I think we have room for one more question. Yeah, with the world increasingly becoming islands, what can we do to protect the species that live in these habitats that are shrinking or and or disappearing? Huge question. Um, yeah. So that yeah, it's really it's a it 
it's certainly a challenge. I think uh, where possible, enabling connectivity, so enabling species to be able to move on their own, those species that could move to find suitable, to make sure that they're finding suitable sort of climate conditions as things change is going to be really critical. That's not possible, of course, in every case, but in some places we could connect uh, habitat islands and, and um, make them less insular. In other cases, I think we might need to be willing to think outside the box and take some risk, as was referred to earlier. So there's, for example, often a lot of resistance to moving species, uh, what's called assisted colonization or assisted migration, and there's good reason for concerns around that. But I think in some situations, if we don't act and if we don't move species that can't move on their own, uh, then we're going to lose them. So I think we need to have some really, uh, some, some really careful, but also we can't wait too long to have those conversations and make those decisions and perhaps be willing to take some risk. Can I give one example? Um, and the assisted colonization also goes to things like better adapted corals, so it's a, totally applicable to the oceans. But like, it, as you know, um, first, you know, thank you to the person for their service uh, for staying at USGS. Uh, I was in the last administration. The people who are staying on, I think, are 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 so important to us. Um, but one this one example is of the barred owl and the spotted owl. Right, and I, I'm sure you guys, some of you have heard of it, but where we've got an animal, the spotted owl, which you know I worked with Audubon in back in 1990, uh, back in 1990 uh, to help protect it because it served as an umbrella species that protected so much more habitat. But it is not moving with climate change and is stuck in an evolutionary or ecological trap. And you've got the barred owl moving into its habitat that's now competing with it, and because its habitat has moved. But there is a question of should it be declared an invasive species, right? And we're dealing with these really complex questions where triage is going to be an answer to what we have to do. Uh, and I don't think it, there's a really good or easy question. And this is why, you know, the, the problems we face are scaling of population growth and food growth and people getting richer, particularly, you know, in the developing world where I've spent most of my career. Uh, and our solutions are linear, and we've got to be able to look at some of these other solutions in terms of, of, of what they take. The, the last piece is we ask, at least in the developing world, those people who can least afford it to bear the greatest risk of conservation after we literally have clear-cut 95% of our country uh, and Europe has done the same uh, to build our economies and not to mention many of their countries. We've got to think about how we shift financial flows and incentivize people for conservation. And with that, we have come to the end of our panel. Thank you so much for our esteemed panelists, Alex, Lisa, and George. Thanks also to Lisa Palmer for originally organizing this, and thanks to you for attending.